Previously on Mafia. Following the retirement of Filippo Bucola in 1952, Raymond Patriaca was promoted to boss of the New England crime family. He became a dominant force in all illicit political and labor union activities. He didn't have this big physical presence, but he had the big presence in the community. People were more likely to turn to Raymond Patriaca or one of his members than they were to call the cops. People would even bring him, like, complaints. Like I said, he was like the godfather. Additionally, Patriaca gained solid connections to the five families and the commission. He had the respect of New York. There are the five crime families in, in New York City, and very easily, any one of them could have tried to control the rackets, the gambling operations, prostitution, the drug trade in New England. They are the most powerful crime families in the country. In the late 1950s, Raymond Patriaca appeared before the McClellan Committee on Labor Racketeering and received national attention. As he's being questioned about senators, about like, hey man, what's your real job? You know, everyone says you're the mob boss, and of course he denies that and took issue with it. He took no shit from lawmakers down in Washington. He fired right back. That almost catapulted his legendary status when he was on that national stage. After years of trying to infiltrate the New England crime family, the FBI finally succeeded when Joe Barboza, a hitman for Patriaca, became an informant. Raymond Patriaca would be imprisoned in 1969, but his greatest heist was yet to come. Patriaca was uh, smart. He was uh, brutal. He was very much in control of what he did. This is Mafia. Raymond Patriaca was released from federal prison in 1974, following a five-year sentence for the murder of Providence bookmaker Willie Marfeo. Tim White, investigative reporter for WPRI-TV in Providence and co-author of The Last Good Heist, discusses Patriaca's family frustrations during this time. He felt that while he was in prison, his soldiers, his the made members of the crime family and associates, they weren't paying enough tribute to him. And he was pissed off about it. And he wanted to send a message to everyone um, that he was in power and while I was away in prison, you didn't show me the respect that you needed to show. And he was also greedy. And he was approached by the very powerful and scary, ruthless, murderous faction of organized crime called the Womet faction. According to a 1979 FBI document, the Womet faction was involved in gambling, loan sharking, extortion, and major robberies. John Womet had learned of this secret mob bank, if you will, that, that was in the heart of this old factory building. I call it a factory building, but it's a first storage facility. And a first storage facility to me is such a, you know, 1970s, Rhode Island thing where people in the summer, they would store their furs in this climate-controlled building. Um, it's actually still in operation today. And they would also do fur repairs and, and things like that. So it just harkened back to a little bit of a different time. 
it was a fortress of a building because it used to be this old Armenian church that was in the middle of Providence. And in the hurricane of 1938, the steeple was blown off it. And then it was then converted because it's just this massive brick structure. In the middle of the converted storage facility were 146 large safe deposit boxes. Each box was two feet high, two feet wide, and about five feet deep. And what was, you know, in this vault, if you will? Well, they were the ill-gotten gains of members of the Patriarca crime family. So you had an illegal bingo operation, that's where the cash went. You ran a bookmaking operation, went in there. Providence used to be the jewelry capital of the country. We still do, it's not, we're not the capital of it anymore. And so there was a lot of raw gemstones, gold bars, silver bars, a lot of coin collectors put uh, all of that in there. So just think about the wealth or the amount of money that, uh, or value that was in there. And there's good reason for that. If you deposit anything above $10,000 into a bank account, the federal government's gonna know about it. There's a, there are regulations that require that. This money could come and go out of this quote unquote bank without the IRS sniffing around. So this was a perfect bank to use if you were a bad guy and you needed to kind of tuck away your money. So all the wise guys used this bonded vault at the Hudson First Storage Building. John Wimet approached Raymond Patriaca with the idea to steal all the money inside the Hudson First Storage Building. The heist was especially appealing to Patriaca because as boss, he would receive the biggest chunk. Again, he was pissed off that while in federal prison, he didn't feel like he was getting the due that he deserved. And this was a great opportunity for him to uh, make a ton of money. So he approved it. John Wimet assembled this gang of thieves, uh, this bizarre, almost sometimes bumbling gang of thieves. I would not describe them as Ocean's Eleven, okay? But, uh, it, but they were really, to put it broadly, they were disposable to the mob. They were, they were nobodies. The lead gunman was a, a guy out of Lowell, Massachusetts named Bobby DeSalt. And, you know, he was down there to help out. He had just escaped from a prison and he sought refuge in Rhode Island with a friend of his who was connected to John Wimette, and that's how he became the lead gunman. On a sweltering August morning in 1975, eight men, including Robert the Deuce de Salt, traveled in a nondescript van to Hudson Fur Storage. The facility had minimal security. Around 8 a.m., DeSalt pulled a pistol out of his briefcase and pointed a 38 caliber revolver at business co-owner Samuel Levine. And he slid him a slip of paper with four names on it. And those, if they only had a limited amount of time to hit up the more than 200 vaults that were in there, those are the four they had to hit up because those were big money makers for the mob. So the guys got into the, to the vault and they had brought these really high-end drills and they were gonna drill through the locks and open up the vault and pour the money out, whatever, but the drill bits were burning out. The stainless steel door proved to be impenetrable. Tensions inside the vault were high. Finally, out of frustration, a guy named Jake the Snake Tarzian grabs a crowbar and he puts it between the hinge of the door and the next door and just gives it a pop. And as it turns out, the hinges were brittle. 
and the door just fell to the ground. And I interviewed a hostage from that day, and she said it sounded like manhole covers hitting the floor one after another, one after another. And there were hoots and hollers. This was the heist of a lifetime. Joe Broadmeadow, author and retired captain from the East Providence Police Department, speaks about the stolen merchandise. The stuff that they had dumped out on the floor was knee-deep. Knee-deep in cash, knee-deep in jewelry, knee-deep in gold, knee-deep in gold bars. They didn't even bother with the five and the one dollar bills. They only would take tens and twenties and hundreds and the gold jewelry. They loaded up six duffel bags worth of stuff, piled it into a van. It weighed so much, it weighed the back of the van down and they got away with it. At that time, law enforcement was unable to determine the value of goods stolen because finding a victim was difficult. Think about it, if you're somebody that stole a bunch of money, stole a bunch of raw gems, stole silver bars, and you hid it in this vault, you got robbed. Are you gonna call the cops and say, hey, all that stuff I just stole got robbed, can you help me out? No. So finding victims was very difficult for the attorney general's office here. We now know through our reporting that it was some $39 million in ill-gotten gains that was stolen. There's also rumors that after they left, the people who were in bonded vault may not have called the police right away. They may have decided to help themselves to the stuff that was left behind before they were ultimately called. But up until that point in time, it was one of the largest robberies in the U.S. Each of the robbers wound up taking $64,000 in cash. Everything else was tucked away. And when things cooled down, they were going to all divide that evenly. They were never getting that money. That money was going up the pyramid of the organized crime family to Raymond Patriaca for everything we talked about. He was never convicted of anything. The robbers, some of them were convicted, some of them got off. But again, Patriaca was able to insulate himself from that. And I should say he always denied his involvement to reporters. He denied his involvement on that. And he, again, he was never charged. But what happened was, and why I think it's a seminal moment in organized crime, is that really illustrates how they can feed on themselves. So that planted a seed of distrust within the organized crime family because the boss ordered from the theft of his own men. And what really pissed people off was the heist was supposed to happen on a certain day. It was put off 24 hours. Why? because Raymond Jr. Patriarca had to get his shit out of one of the lockboxes in there. So he cleared out his stuff 24 hours before the heist. Imagine what that will do when you're, you know, you're a made member of the crime family, you just got all your stuff stolen, you're pretty darn sure the boss okayed it. He's still the boss, you still gotta work for him, you still gotta respect him, but you have a lot of ill feeling about, about what went down. Patriarca was hounded by law enforcement and was charged for numerous crimes up until his death. On July 11, 1984, at the age of 76, Raymond Patriarca died of a heart attack. The funeral procession was miles long, miles long. And there was probably as many law enforcement organizations taking pictures of everybody who was there as there were people who attended the funeral. I mean, there were helicopters to the FBI, DEA, organized crime intelligence units from all over the country. 
that were there to see who would show up. And the guys who showed up were really a who's who of organized crime. During this time, Joe Broadmeadow was a police officer with the East Providence Police Department. He recalls one visitor who showed up days after Patriarca's funeral. There were a lot of interesting discussion about who didn't show up when this went on. And what happened is several days after this funeral, my partner and I were driving by where the cemetery was, and we saw this large limousine with New York plates at the site of the grave. So we swung into the cemetery just to see who this was. And I can still see this uh, as if it happened yesterday. I pull up near the car, and, and really the biggest person I had ever seen in my entire life got out of the passenger side front door of that limo. I mean, an absolute giant of a man. And what we realized, the guy who was in the car was Paulie Castellano, who at the time was the head of the, one of the crime families in New York City. He came later to pay his respects to the, to the patriarcha. But the guy who got out of the car was his bodyguard. And I joked with my partner that I said that we don't have enough bullets to kill that guy, so we better get out of here. He was, he was just enormous. He, was, he would make football plays in the NFL look small. But the point being is that Castellano thought enough about Raymond Patriarca. He didn't want to come here when he knew there would be the spectacle because he knew that's what it would be. It would be a spectacle. And he probably might have been worried about what would happen to him if he came there then. Because ultimately, shortly after this happened, Castellano was gunned down by John Gotti in New York City. And Gotti took over uh, control of that particular family. Following Patriarca's death, Raymond Jr. took the reins of the New England crime family, but was considered a weak leader by comparison. Those are some pretty big shoes to fill, right? The Boston faction, they smelled an opportunity to take rest power from Providence. A mob war ignited following the death of Raymond L.S. Patriarca, and there were people that were aligned closely with Raymond Jr. Patriarca that were dying. Raymond Jr. decided now would be a good time to try and bring the family together. And in his words, let bygones be bygones. He was trying to not only remain in power, but not get killed. Raymond Jr. decided to induct four new members into the Patriarca crime family. Three from Boston and one from Rhode Island. The infamous ceremony took place in Medford, Massachusetts on October 29th. 1989. They tried to just pick sort of a random home that had a connection with an associate of the crime family, a connection with somebody who was being sworn into the crime family that day. But it's in, in this blue-collar, working-class neighborhood, a suburb of Boston, just north of Boston. No one would think that a mob induction ceremony was happening there. Unfortunately for Raymond Jr. Patriarca, the FBI had the screws to somebody that knew about the induction ceremony and actually uh, drove Raymond Patriarca there. Um, so the FBI was well aware of what was going on. Even worse for the Patriarca crime family. An FBI agent lived three houses down from where the induction ceremony was to take place. Posing as telephone workers, the FBI bugged the house located on Guild Street in Medford. The family that was living there went up to New Hampshire 
and so the house was empty for a portion of time. They went in there and they put in hidden microphones. And again, this is 1989, so technology is what it is. They literally ran a wire from that home, three houses up, to the FBI agent's house. And then the FBI staked out a house across the street where the the FBI agent was friendly with the people across the street so they could take pictures as people were coming and going. The hidden microphone captured the first known recording of a mob induction ceremony. It was history in the making. And it had everything from taking the oath of Omerta in Sicilian, burning the card of the saint, uh, the patron saint of the Patriarca crime family in their hand and pricking their trigger finger on that. Everything that you you now think about from the Hollywood version of an induction ceremony, we know about because of what happened on Guild Street in 1989. Former Rhode Island State Police Superintendent Brendan P. Doherty discusses the aftermath of the legendary wiretapping. That was a, an interesting time. Uh, Raymond was uh, indicted. Raymond Jr. was indicted as a result of running a criminal enterprise. Again, the FBI, I, I can't uh, commend them enough for the work they did on that because to be able to get into that court-authorized warrant and uh, install that equipment uh, was uh, pretty good work. Uh, I actually testified in Connecticut and I identified uh, a couple of uh, the, the folks that were their voices on the, on the tapes. So that was, that was one of the first big hits of the patriarchal crime family to weaken the patriarchal crime family in the future. It's, uh, today, it's, it's nothing like it was when Raymond Sr. was running that operation years ago. It destroyed, essentially, the ability for defense attorneys to question the existence of organized crime. Up until that moment, you know, when these cases were brought forward, there could be the argument that organized crime didn't exist, that you're, you know, the government is overreaching here, um, there's no evidence to prove it, so you fall short on that standard in the criminal case. Well, now, here's a recording of four men taking the oath, swearing loyalty to the family above their own, and it was all caught on tape. And so not only was it damaging to the Patriarca crime family, it was damaging to all organized crime families across the country. The recording was a huge embarrassment to the Patriarca crime family. After Patriarca Jr. was indicted and sent to prison, underboss Nikki Bianco assumed control. You couldn't have Junior Patriarca after presiding over an induction ceremony <laughs> that was caught on tape uh, running the show as mob boss. And again, this was the son of the legendary boss of the Patriarca crime family uh, where this happened under his watch. And that was really one of the moments that was a key downfall, I would say, to the entire, to the entire New England crime family. Raymond Sr. is best remembered as having a complex legacy. Despite being a ruthless crime boss, Raymond Patriarca was seen as a beloved member of the Providence community. The one thing that, that has always struck me as, as difficult to explain is how otherwise rational, intelligent people can sort of overlook the crime part of it and overlook at what 
was the organized part of it. And the organized part of it was he's very active in the neighborhood. He was very active in the community. You know, little kids could come up to him and he'd say hi. He was like, you know, the old grandfather sitting on a, the, the street, you know, on the chair outside of his business. People focus and they can see that sort of stuff. And that's that really is his legacy. What happened after him is sort of a classic example of how how nepotism can be a bad thing. You know, the son didn't quite live up to the expectation. He was not, don't get me wrong, he was not without his abilities. He, he did, you know, he, he was not that he was completely ineffective as, uh, but he was not his father. You know, it's like a, you know, if, if you want to put a sports analogy on it, Raymond Patriarca was Mickey Mantle and, and, and Raymond was a, you know, a, a really good AAA ball player. Almost, but not quite there. Whereas, you know, Raymond was the real deal. Raymond Patriarca had, believe it or not, uh, he had a, a lot of legitimate friends in high places. You know, it was always our concern that he would have a uh, he would have a cop or a judge or uh, politicians. And I'm not naive that did happen, but not to the level that uh, uh, we that some people would like to say it happened. Uh, uh, if Raymond could take advantage of someone and, and pay them off, whether it be a, a council member in some city or town or a mayor, uh, he certainly would would pursue that. But it was usually through an intermediary because he knew what the, the crime of bribery was all about, too. So he would have someone do his dirty work for him. And then there were people who were just sympathizers. They just liked the guy. They were enamored with this mafia, the, the mystique of the mafia. Uh, really, uh, I'm telling you, it was uh, amazing how popular that man was. And But with the, uh, the, the underworld, <laughs> at the end, he was a... Uh, a, a, an older man who was, uh, had, had lost a lot of weight. Uh, he was not healthy at the end, but he was feared because he was the real deal. Uh, he was a mafia boss, make no mistake about it. Anyone that crossed him, he made sure that he, it was known. Next week on the finale of Mafia. From the Castellamorese War to the McClellan Committee meetings, we'll explore the intersecting worlds of organized crime. Luciano approached Maranzano, the head of the Castellamorese faction, and made a deal with him that he would bump off Masseria. Vito Genovese rose to the top by intimidation, but also by being allowed to rise to the top by intimidation. And the guy who allowed him to do that was Lucky Luciano. Lucky Luciano used Vito Genovese as his intimidator. The mob, of course, was horrified. The leaders were horrified by what he, had, uh, what he was going to do. The FBI was leaking stories in the Justice Department were trying to turn him into an instant sensation, Garacci into an instant sensation. They put out a contract on him. I'm Fleet Cooper, and this has been Mafia, an Audioboom original series. Mafia is produced by Audioboom's Lauren Vogel, Blair Payton, Pam Burroughs, and Karen Bevan. Executive producers for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. Special thanks to Gary Jenkins of the true crime podcast Gangland Wire, author Joe Broadmeadow, Tim White, investigative reporter and co-author of The Last Good Heist, and former Rhode Island State Police Superintendent Brendan P. Doherty. 
Follow Mafia on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.